welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, December 18th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. So, Science and the City fans, it turns out that when it comes to science, size does matter. A couple of weeks ago, Science in the City hosted Harvard chemical biologist George Whitesides and renowned photographer Felice Frankel, and they launched their brand new book called No Small Matter. The book delves into the world of nanoscience, from quantum physics to wires only a few atoms thick, to pregnancy tests. Nanoscience is everywhere in our lives. I sat down with Whitesides and Frankel to find out more about the No Small Matter project and why both of them think visualizing science is so important. Science in the City has put a little something together for you for the new year. Five brilliant women scientists talking about subjects that interest women and the people who love them. We're calling it our Girls' Night Out series because we all know science could use a lot more women. Helen Fisher kicks off the series on January 5th with her take on the science of love and whom we choose. Then we've got topics from food to beauty to our changing ecosystem. Act fast and you can take advantage of our season tickets package. Buy tickets to all five events and get a free membership to the New York Academy of Sciences, a savings of over $100. And hey, I gotta say, if you're one of those last minute shoppers, it wouldn't make a bad holiday gift either. Find all you need to know about Girls' Night Out online at www.nyas.org slash girlsnightout. So my name is Felice Frankel, and I'm a science photographer. What I do is I make pictures of science for researchers, sometimes for them to use in their presentations and their journal submissions, but often, and, and that's why we're here, I'm also very committed to making pictures for the public. How did you get into science photography? That was one of those pieces of luck in life, and I really do mean that. My background is in science. I don't have a graduate degree, but I was a biology major, and then I went to work in a laboratory. To make a long story short, I became, through a series of events, a landscape and architecture photographer, and was given a fellowship at Harvard, a mid-career fellowship, to be there for a year and to do anything I wanted to do. Could you believe that? It was pretty fantastic. So it turned out that while my colleagues were taking classes at the Graduate School of Design, I lived at the Science Center. I was auditing every class I could find my way into, and one class was given by this guy who everybody said was a really terrific lecturer and I you know, just decided to go in and sure enough it was quite fascinating. It was on molecular biology. I introduced myself to him afterwards because it just felt like he was very visual in how he thought and represented ideas. So I invited myself into his laboratory and he welcomed me along with his colleagues and I said I'd like to try to take some pictures of the work and to cut to the chase, we got the cover of Science. Who was the scientist? The guy sitting right next to me. 
I'm George Whitesides. I'm a professor of chemistry at Harvard. So what was it like the first time you met Felice? It was adversarial. We started with Felice introducing herself and telling me that what I did was basically amateurish and not really very well done and she could do it much better. And my response to that was terrific, please show me. She was partly right. What do you mean partly? What's the part that I, you're, I was wrong about? The question of when one wants to have something interesting to look at but not necessarily informative and when you want to have something that's really informative even though it's not necessarily interesting to look at is a question of context. I'm sitting in one of the Academy's empty offices in between George and Felice. I'm here to ask them about No Small Matter, their new book on nanoscience. Though this is the first time I've met either of them, it doesn't take me long to realize I'm sitting between two people who know each other exceptionally well. George has been researching and teaching at Harvard since 1982, and before that, he was at MIT. His lab studies biochemistry, material science, catalysis, and physical organic chemistry. The book we've written is called No Small Matter. And no small matter is not just writing, it's a combination of images and explanatory text. And the basic underlying premise is that an enormous number of the really interesting things in the world have to do with interactions, objects, whatever it might be, that are small in size. And what does small in size mean? And basically it means bigger than molecules but smaller than a toaster oven. Almost anything in that size range serves. But things basically that are too small to see but bigger than what chemists have historically worked with. Mm -hmm. The machinery and microelectronics, much of the stuff that's on the inside of the cell, objects that show quantum phenomena and room temperature. There's just a host of really interesting sorts of things that are in this intermediate range of sizes. And only in the last maybe 15 years has it been possible to explore this range of sizes for various reasons. So the book is looking at that range of sizes, objects in that range of sizes, phenomena that come from those objects, functions that come from the phenomena, and then trying to explain them in ways that are clear to us, and then we hope to people who look at the book. Now, science doesn't have a great reputation for being easy to explain visually. And when it comes to things that are too small to even see, well, it gets even trickier. But George says visualization is a big part of his work, which is part of the reason why he was inspired to make no small matter. Visual representation has always been important. I was, by background at least, an organic chemist, and we work in pictograms. So the whole science is based on drawing little pictures of things. But although this is a wonderful shorthand for chemists talking to chemists or physicists talking to physicists, it's a terrible way for scientists to try to talk to people who are not experts in what they're doing, regardless of whether they're scientists or non-scientists. So one needed something, some way of, of conveying information that was broadly understandable. Pictures are wonderful at that. They catch attention. They really capture the focus of the person who's, who's looking at them, if they're correctly done. And once you've caught someone's attention, then everyone's willing to think about what might that be. But if you don't catch the attention, it's pretty much a lost cause from the beginning. It strikes me that figuring out ways to take pictures of things we can't see with our naked eye must be a pretty big challenge for a photographer. Felice says it definitely is, and that she and George had to think of new and creative ways to represent the concepts in the book. It turns out that uh, a photographer works with 
photons, and photons cannot make pictures of nanometer structures. So sometimes one has to use electrons and forces and all sorts of ways of representing with, uh, with numbers and then eventually translates it into images. So yes, it, it's not my domain. And so no, I couldn't do a lot of it. And some of the images are not mine. I acted more as a photo editor and sort of put my own taste into them. And, and that's why visually, I think it is, does work. It's, it's, it's a, there's a visual thread through it. But besides that, we also decided it would be important not to just show science images of nanoscience because there are so many wonderful images of those out there already. Maybe we could use metaphor as a means of explaining what is going on way, way down there on that scale. And that was, that was really a great fun piece to, the, between the two of us to try to figure out what kind of picture can sort of give you an idea about what's going on, but really it's not the thing. It's a metaphor of it. And get the reader to look at it and identify what it is and then go on, of course, to read about it. It's a different way of thinking about science. When, as a chemist, I draw a picture of water, I draw water molecules and their hydrogen bonds and all the rest of that kind of thing. But really, often what one is not interested is in is the hydrogen bond structure, but the fact that a drop of water hangs on a faucet or a raindrop doesn't roll off a leaf or something of that sort. And that's best done with a picture. I mean, everyone knows that a drop of water doesn't fall off a faucet. Everyone knows that, but no one ever thinks about it. But it's actually astonishing. Why doesn't it fall down? And understanding why it doesn't fall down tells you everything about the way the water molecules interact in a drop of water. It's just that you have to then burrow down into the problem a bit from the shape of the water drop. I asked Felice about some of her favorite photographic metaphors in the book. What was really important was to give a sense of some of the tools that are used to see nanostructures. Mm -hmm. And as I said, you can't see them with a camera, but you can see them with something called a, an atomic force microscope, which literally measures the forces between a, a needle, let's call it a needle, a tip, and a surface of, that has structures that are really, really small, so small that a photon can't capture it. So this tip r tracks across the surface and feels the structure beneath it by measuring the force between the tip and that structure. And we have, I think, a pretty successful metaphor of that tool, and which is uh, pin art. You know, have you seen these toys that you you push against the pin with some your hand or your face, but the pins read the structure of whatever they're sensing, and it's not a perfect metaphor. More metaphors always fall apart at some level, but enough, I think, that gives an idea of how an AFM tip works. That's one. We have something called the, a quantum apple, which was my attempt to make an image that initially looks kind of attractive, let's say that, and then if you really look carefully, you realize that something is not quite right, that this glass apple can't possibly cast a square shadow. 
And that was a way of my suggesting how counterintuitive, how weird quantum mechanics is. And I don't understand quantum mechanics at all, maybe just a little bit. But I do understand that it's strange. And this was my way of making a strange picture that is not in your face strange. You have to look a little more carefully. How'd you get the square shadow? I made a picture of a square cube, and I, in Photoshop, took out just the shadow and plopped it on the apple shadow and softened it a little bit. And it's called complete dishonesty. <laughs> However, in the back of the book, I have my own little section called Five Not-So-Easy Pieces, and I describe how I make all of these pictures. That's the one thing that I think is important that, for me anyway, that I'm not an artist. I'm, I'm trying to communicate science. So every time I do any sort of manipulation, I always indicate what I've done. And so that was a fun picture for me to do. The issue with some of Felice's photography, which I so like, is that it has the characteristic that when you first look at the image, you actually don't know what you're looking at. And the images are so arresting visually that you say, what is that? I'd like to know what it is. And that in some actually pretty straightforward way recapitulates the process of science, where you look at some phenomenon and you say, that's interesting, I'd like to know what it is. Here, with luck, you can get the whole thing over in a couple of minutes. But if you look at the picture, you say what it is, you read a short text, it explains what it is, and you're done. You don't have to spend the next 15 years of your life working through a PhD thesis. But it is an efficient way of doing things. And whatever works. You know, sometimes metaphor works, sometimes seeing the real thing works, sometimes it's a combination of the two that works best. But often, to me at least, metaphor is the right way of doing things. Pauling used to think, used to say that he liked to think of himself as an electron and then to imagine how he would react to another electron or another nucleus or something like that. It's a very imperfect way of doing things, but it's not a bad way of starting to understand the world. And nanoscience is something especially worth understanding, says George, since it's such a big part of our lives in ways most of us don't even realize. For one thing, nano is the size range that gives all the function to electronics. And information which lives in electronics is what's changed the world. I mean, globalization, the internet, blogs, Wi-Fi, it's basically all about computers and computer networks and things like that. And those are machines, if you can think about it, apparatus, devices, which have their critical function coming from wires that are now 20, 30 atoms across, just that kind of size. Phenomenally small structures. So that's interesting. The second thing is that one of the areas of science that's been the most interesting in the last period of time has been biology. And a cell is an object that's about a couple of microns in size. A couple of microns means some 10,000 nanometers, that general size range, but in the size range of, of the nanometer scale. And it's filled with things that are nanometer in size that provide its function. Both George and Felice have plenty of other projects on the go. But I asked George what causes him to take a break from research, to pair up with Felice and communicate science rather than do science. There are a couple of reasons why communicating science is important. One is that we all as citizens live in a world in which a lot of the change that 
goes on is caused by science. A lot of the problems are going to require science and technology to solve them. And a democracy is based on the idea that people have some idea what's going on in the world around them and can make a choice. So that's one reason. A second reason is just it is so much fun. Science is just so interesting. These issues, for example, in what, how does a quantum reality become a macroscopic reality, they really are just endlessly, endlessly fascinating. And it's fun to share that. And then it's no small business that, in fact, in trying to explain something to people, you have to first explain it to yourself. So it is very useful for me to think through these things and try to understand them. A major reason for being a teacher is that the teacher learns more than the student's done, always. And so this is another form of teaching. It's not teaching, you know, it's not the same kind of thing at all, but still trying to explain to me, to Felice, to someone like you, is part of me understanding and helping other people to understand it. Happy holidays from Science in the City. We're taking a break next week to celebrate the season, but we'll be back with a bang on January 1st with the new 2010 Science in the City podcast and event series. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued generous support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our event series and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love your feedback on any of the Science in the City programs. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. Happy holidays and see you in the new year.